invite your attention to Isaiah chapter 45 tonight. Isaiah chapter 45. <clears throat> the title for this message comes directly out of the passage in verse 9. Woe to him who strives with his maker. Woe to him who strives with his maker. Let the potsherds strive with the potsherds of the earth. Shall the clay say to him who forms it, What are you making? Or shall your handiwork say, He has no hands? Woe to him who says to his father, What are you begetting? Or to the woman, What have you brought forth? May God bless the reading of his word tonight is my prayer. This is a strange prophecy in a way in Isaiah 45. It directs itself to the king named Cyrus. A leader who was not yet on the stage anywhere uh, when Isaiah's prophecy was written. Um, I actually have a, a Bible uh, that, uh, one of those study Bibles, and you know, the people who put out the study Bibles, whoever they are, uh, have various ideas that they place in those study Bibles and use them then as a reflection of their thinking. And uh, this one actually had the book of Isaiah divided into two parts. And that was a reflection of the fact that he considered there to be basically two different Isaiahs. And many think that. Uh, I'm not one of them, but there's a lot of them who do. They can present you some convincing arguments. If I get up to heaven and there's two Isaiahs there, I want to meet both of them. (laughs) I mean, that's just my thinking. Uh, Regardless, uh, they're both inspired. If this was the Isaiah, the same Isaiah who wrote the first part of the book of Isaiah, then God had identified Cyrus long before Cyrus ever lived, long before he rose to power, uh, long before they were carried off into captivity. Now, our God is certainly able to do that, isn't he? I mean, it was not a big surprise to him. Uh, But uh, in the absence of conclusive evidence to the contrary, I'll just stick with that narrative. That God uh, inspired Isaiah to write about this man long before he was born. It's a common tendency for us to try to anticipate what God is going to do and how he does it. And that makes it possible for us to even miss God altogether Because he doesn't do what we expect him to. And as God is all-powerful and God is all-knowing, and he doesn't ask our permission very often, in fact, not at all, about what he sets out to do, uh, then when we begin to get it set in our mind and settle that God has to work in this way or that God has to do things in this way or even that he has to work in a way that I can understand or explain, uh, then that's a, that's a dangerous thing. How bad is it? Well, it was bad enough that Israel missed their Messiah because they were looking for a king uh, while God was putting a baby in a manger. How serious is it? So much so that God's champion, the mighty Elijah, was ready to quit. Throw in the towel. Be done. In fact, asking God to kill him. Uh, not knowing that it was the still, small voice of God that really determined the course of the nation. That was a hard pill for Elijah to swallow. Since he had gone through all of that trouble, after all, 
with the confrontation on Mount Carmel, with the big showdown with Jezebel, all those barrels of water poured out, the sacrifice made. If God is God, serve him. If Baal is God, serve him. Choose it. Oh, what a great sermon he preached. Uh, but that didn't determine the destiny of the nation. What, what a great time he had and a great victory he had over the prophets of Baal. But after all that was done, there was Jezebel. Her heart was not changed a bit. Not a bit. By everything that had happened, three years of drought... It was a still, small voice that changed the nation. You read that story sometime when Elijah went running 40 days and ended up in a cave and God came. It's a still, small voice. Hmm. But Elijah was ready to quit because God did not move the way he expected. Simon Peter ended up arguing with the Lord of all things over the cross. Not realizing that the cross was God's plan for total victory. Abraham we saw ending up with Hagar. Not knowing or realizing that God was not for a single second. Much less a, a decade or two. Not for a second was God behind schedule. Well, in our text tonight, we have a similar kind of uh, striving that was going on. A, a potsherd is a broken piece of pottery. And it's striving with other broken pieces of pottery. Now, one of the things that stood out in, in my mind many years ago in traveling the, the, what we call the Holy Land, the land of Israel, was the fact that there were potsherds lying everywhere. They were everywhere. You might think they were very rare. You know, you might be like a finding an arrowhead or something. You know, kicking around one day and you look down, all of a sudden there's one there. These things were everywhere. They were lining every road, every place that where they were digging, anything that they were doing, they were everywhere. It seemed like everywhere we went, there were pieces of broken pottery laying around everywhere. Not just one or two, but millions. One of them, no doubt, had been a plate at some time, a saucer perhaps, a lamp, a vase, a jar. But not a single one of those pieces of broken pottery were able to do what they had been designed to do. Remember, a potsherd is a broken piece of pottery. Contending then with other broken pieces of pottery. Shall the potsherd strive with the potsherds of the earth? It's like that broken piece of plate laying there on the ground. Telling that cup, broken, man you need to get your act together. Why don't you pull yourself together? I'm ashamed of you that you're not doing better than what you are. But all of them are broken. All of them are broken. And that is a picture, folk, of humanity. We're all broken. All of us. Now, I know what you're thinking. Well, I'm not as broken as so-and-so. I know. I know. How they, they're in a lot worse shape than I am. I, I understand. 
I'm not in nearly as many pieces as that one is. I mean, they're just broken a whole lot worse than I. I've just got one little crack. They're just broke all to pieces. Uh, broken is broken in the pottery business. You see, it doesn't matter whether a cup is shattered on the floor, whether it has one crack, one crack in it, we're still not going to put coffee in it. Just the way it is. Bible tells us in this passage, woe, woe to you. Woe to him who strives with his maker. And in so doing, uh, God is giving us a yellow flashing warning light. Woe, danger. There's danger in this. And so, in order to correct their problems, how they were all broken, how they were striving with each other over how broken they are, and because of their brokenness, of course, guess who they were blaming it all on? <laughs> the potter. Of course, it's the potter's fault that I'm made the way I am. Shall a man then contend with his maker? That's the issue. And so God reminds them of several things in this great passage. Uh, first of all, there's his everyday work in verse 7. God said, I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. Drop down, ye heavens, from above, and let the skies pour down righteousness. Let the earth open, and let them bring forth salvation, and let righteousness spring up together. I, the Lord, have created it. He goes on in verse 12. I have made the earth and created man upon it. I, even my hands, have stretched out the heavens, and all their host have I commanded. All in a day's work. Remember that old section in the Reader's Digest? I'm not going to tell you some funny story from there. I just reminded myself of it. Just all in a day's work. Now, what does God do? Well, God is an eternal being, so days are not really something he numbers. But uh, as far as his own activities and works are concerned. But he gives us a lot of things that he does almost routinely. Things that he has done or accomplished. Uh, well, I made the earth, I created everything on it, uh, made man, I stretched out the heavens with my hands, which of course means that he's got to be wider than the heavens if he's going to stretch them out. I've appointed all the host of their proper place and sphere. So that all the stars we can see and all of the trillions untold numbers of stars that we can't see, they are all in exactly the right place, doing exactly what God created them to do. And he keeps them all going so that there is nothing that happens in the universe that ever occurs without his knowledge. Nothing in all the universe that ever moves outside of the realm of his power. So when we consider such a God as this, such an incredible maker who has fashioned the universe, who has fashioned us, who has put us in this world, would anybody then ever dream of giving advice to such a great God? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, unfortunately we do. We do. 
And that's exactly what was happening in this passage. There were those who were struggling, understanding what they saw and what they were seeing and, and what was going to happen. God knew when they read about Cyrus that there would be those who wondered how that God could call him his anointed. Even though he will say several times in this passage that he doesn't know me at all. And how God could raise up a wicked ruler. A man who doesn't know him. Not a good man necessarily. But yet use him to accomplish the restoration of his people. From a captivity that hadn't even happened yet. How could God do all of these things? Men would strive with him and he knew it. So he reminds us. He reminds us about his sovereignty with great and repeated emphasis. I am God and beside me there is no one else. There was no one else to look to, to pray to, to blame or to criticize. Uh, he alone is God. He could also say then in verse 5, I am the Lord and there is none else. There is no God beside me. I girded thee though thou hast not known me. He was taking complete credit for Cyrus's rise to power. Which if Cyrus ever read this, and I don't know whether he did or not, but if he ever did, I'm sure he would have found that to be a big surprise. Because after all, Cyrus was not a believer. He would have credited his military might, his organizational abilities, all the mighty kingdoms that he had accomplished and the great battles that he had fought and won. He would have said, I'm Cyrus probably, and there's, beside me there's no one else. But... Uh, uh, not God. God was able to look at this as, and the fact that he was going to use such an evil person to accomplish his plan. Is that really so hard for us to comprehend tonight? Listen, our Bible still tells us that uh, the rulers of this earth are appointed by God. They're put in place to accomplish his purposes. And we may know what they are, and we may not know what they are. We may think we know. And if they think we know, then we need to go back to that first few remarks of this message tonight about how dangerous it is to think that God is going to operate in a way that we can understand or explain. God has purposes, and if he chooses to raise up a man like Cyrus and use them to deliver his nation Israel, he has every right to do that. I knew a fellow one time that absolutely hated Chrysler products. He just would not drive ride in one. I offered him a ride one day. He said, I'd rather walk than ride in a Chrysler. Now, that's pretty bad. Uh, I said, man, come on, ride with me. He said, no, my, my tin poisoning shot's not up to date yet. I'm not going to. I'm not going to ride in a, in, a, in a Chrysler product. I mean, he was a Chevrolet guy, top to bottom, side to side. Other people might be Fords. I don't know what your particular vehicle pres, uh, uh, preference is tonight, but I know one thing. We could put our God in any car, <laughs> and he would arrive at the right destination. It's my way of saying that God, if God uses a wicked person or raises up a king that maybe we don't like or maybe that we don't agree with, don't think that God still can't get that man to go where he wants him to go. And just reference Isaiah 45. It's right here uh, with Cyrus. God is capable of working in and through 
people who don't know him in order to accomplish his purposes. I'm glad I serve a God like that. Because quite frankly, when I look on the world scene today, I see a whole lot more people who seem to be playing for the other team than people who are actually leading their countries in a way that honors God and would serve God. God is able to work through even wicked people to accomplish his purposes. Well, God's everyday work is all built up in his sovereignty. But then he also works in those sovereign ways that we've seen uh, tonight in our text. What does this then demand of us? Well, verse 9 uh, tells us that it demands our, our silence. Woe unto him, verse 10, then, that saith unto his father, What begettest thou to the woman? What hast thou brought forth? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel and his Maker, Ask me of things to come concerning my sons, concerning the work of my hands. Command ye me. Are we really going to tell God how he should behave or what he should do? This is a divine complaint that he has offered because we almost get to the point sometimes where we expect God to do our bidding. And we've come dangerously close in America in the last 20 years, if you'll allow me to preach a little bit for you tonight and just maybe meddle some. We've come dangerously close in America in the last 20 years with this name it, claim it. Uh, kind of, of spiritual uh, idea and theology. Uh, I've heard people praying, I mean on national television, where they were actually issuing almost what sounded like demands. As if they had the authority to tell God, well, I've done this, I've given this amount of money, I've done this and that, and therefore, God, I have the right to demand this of you and expect you to keep what I have demanded or do what I've told you to. Uh, but God's sovereignty... When it comes to what God does, it's just a good time for us to be quiet, to be still, to be silent, not to speak, not to inject God, or even to offer Him our opinion. But not only then does, does He rebuke them for commanding Him, but He also then demands our submissions. Shall ye commit to me the work of my hand? Will you Simply trust me to do what only I can do. The answer to that, in a way, would be simple. We'd say, well, sure, I trust God. I trusted him for the salvation of my soul. I trusted him to deliver me from hell and to take me from heaven to, to heaven. I trusted him then. I trust him now. I'm going to trust him throughout all of my life. Well, of course, of course, I will commit to God the work of his hand. But... On the other hand, we find that sometimes it's not quite so easy to trust him. It's uh, far easier for, him to for me to trust God with me than it is to trust God with the people that I love. It's easier for me to trust God with me than it is to trust God with my kids. It's easier for him to... Trust God with me than it is to trust God with our church or to trust God with our community or trust God with our nation. Will we commit this, His work, to the works of His hand? Will we trust Him and submit to Him as He's accomplishing His work? The great example of this is the one He brings up in the passage, the, the image of the potter and the clay. Because in, in trusting the the, the master, the creator, 
uh, we are trusting then the potter's purpose. And every potter that sits down on the wheel has a purpose. He's got something that he wants to make, whatever it is. And God is working in our lives. He is working in our family. He is working in our church. He's working in our community. He's working in our nation. I got news for you tonight. He's working in our world. What's he going to do? Exactly what he has planned to do. What we need to do is, is recognize that and submit to it. Submit to the potter's purpose. I don't know what exactly that means in relationship to the world. But I know what it means in our life because Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10 tells us that we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus and two good works which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. We submit then to the potter's purpose and the potter's plan. And that is the way that He chooses to accomplish that purpose. It is the potter who controls the shape of the vessel. It is the potter that chooses the clay that goes on the wheel. It is the potter that determines how fast the wheel spins. It is the potter then that sees when there's some distortion in the clay. It is the potter that says, this can't be made that way. And he makes it again. That's in Jeremiah 18. And then, of course, we submit to the potter's pressure. Pressure. How he molds us into what he wants us to be. If there's one thing that I see a whole lot of in our community, in our nation, in our world, it is pressure. There is a lot of stress, a lot of pressure going on as people are pressing against people. So much unrest, so much turmoil. You might be like me and pray to God, God, uh, just bring our nation together. Bind our hearts together. Help us to follow you and to love you and to serve you and to be, to be nice. I mean, wouldn't that be good? Just to see folks being nice to each other a little bit, just a little bit. But sometimes God uses that pressure to accomplish his purposes. We don't always know what they are, but we can always trust the potter because he does. So if we have God's everyday work and God's sovereign work, we also have his righteous work. And that's uh, verse 13. I have raised him up, speaking of Cyrus, in righteousness, and I will direct all his ways. He shall build my city and he shall let go my captives, not for price nor reward, saith the Lord of hosts. They're not even going to buy him off. And in fact, if you're familiar with the story uh, of the return of Israel out of Babylonian captivity, you know uh, that they decreed that they would go back and build the city. You know that they paid for it. You know that they sent them an army to help them and protect them to make sure that they arrived at their destination. You know when the enemies came up against them to stop them that it was this same governmental power that saw to it that they were able to accomplish their purposes. Oh, listen, if I could say nothing else from Isaiah chapter 45 tonight, it would be that I would not want to be those people that stand against the nation of Israel and try to stop what God is doing with them. And just looking in this passage, what God does is always for our good 
Even though, as the writer of the book of Hebrews said in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6, that no chastening for the present time seems to be joyous, but yet in the end it accomplishes what God would have it to accomplish. He does it for our good and He does it for His glory. And I pray that again and again and again and again in my life. And I prayed it in the lives of others when I didn't know what else to pray for. And that is, God, use this. Use this for their good and for your glory. Uh, Jesus prayed that when he prayed. Now my soul is troubled and what shall I say? Father, glorify thy name. And if Jesus our Lord could pray that prayer, you know what? You and I can pray it too. When we don't know what to say or don't know what to pray for, we can pray for God to glorify his name in this situation. Why then, in light of all of this truth, why then do we strive with our maker? Well, I think this sentence uh, sums it up so succinctly for us. We strive with our maker because we are more interested in our good than in God's glory, even though we don't even know what is good. We think we do. We think we have this down pretty well. Well, I can tell the difference between something that's good or something that's bad, something that's going to help me or, or something that is going to be dangerous to me. I mean, I, I know the difference. I know good when I see it. <laughs> oh, no. Uh, not when it comes to what God is doing. Remember, God is good. And His purposes are always out to accomplish things that are good. There is evil in this world, untold evil in this world. And we might think that that evil exists and and because that evil exists, then God must not be much in control. Just remember Cyrus. Uh, God raised him up. He had a purpose. He accomplished that purpose. He moved in accordance with that plan. He did exactly what the Lord said that he would do. Our God is still working. He's still alive. My big question for you tonight is, do you know him? Do you know him? If you haven't submitted to him, you really don't know him. <laughs> because the only way you can really know God is when we bow the knee. When we bow the knee to our God in service to him. When we bow the knee and receive Jesus Christ as our Savior. When we acknowledge him as our God, as our owner, as our Savior, as our Master. When we admit, I can't help myself. And we know at that moment in time that Jesus Christ has done for us what we cannot do. Have you received him as your Savior tonight? Have you followed him in baptism? Are you living your life to commit yourself to his service? For your good, for God's glory. Let's stand together.